0: All right, um, I'll go ahead and open us. Uh, Welcome to Sophomoros, um, a podcast where we come with our foolishness, um, and in the midst of that foolishness, uh, seek it against the wisdom of Christ. Um, I'm here with my uh, cousin Kevin. Uh, Kevin and I get to see each other about once a year, and every time we see each other, we get into very long and interesting conversations, and Kevin is one of the people... That I know who can relate things together at a rate and in a way that is just incredible. He's got just a, a vault of a mind. So I thought it'd be interesting to grab him onto the podcast and uh, uh, pick his brain on some things. So, Kevin, how you doing? Oh, I'm I'm feeling foolish. Would you? What did you just say? I You're feeling I'm, coolish? I'm feeling foolish. <laughs> Oh, foolish, I thought you said coolish. I was like, what does that mean? I, like, <laughs> what word is that? Uh, it sounds like when something one of those people would say that's like, Yeah, I'm doing well, right? Like, they won't say I'm doing good because you know, you know, like grammatical reasons because they're snobs. Are you one of those people, Kevin? Am I calling no, you out uh, right okay. now? Okay,
1: I have a philosophy with English actually, in, re- in relation of course to this. You do. So, because <laughs> so there are languages like French. Or, or many others, as far as I know, where they actually have, like, some uh, old, usually males sitting in an office that are, like, determining what is or is not the correct word for this language. And they're, like, actually... In- no way. Yeah, and no, this is a thing. And uh, they're usually, like, university professors or whatever. And oh, okay. uh, in, in, in France, it's actually, like, a legal thing. So what these people determine is a French word legally now in any legal documents that word has to be used for that thing so if they're like we don't like the word refrigerator and they come up with like a french sounding version of that now any legal documentation <laughs> relating to a refrigerator has to use this french version
0: no way yeah to no like maintain
1: way and preserve the language english doesn't have this we don't have people that are determining what is or is not English. And so what's English is uh, if you're using a lot of words that are traditionally considered English and then you throw some other stuff in there and it's another language or it's something you made up like Dr. Seuss or whatever, Mm. it doesn't matter. Mm. It's still English because you are using a word intending to convey meaning and I am receiving that meaning. And whether that word or phrasing has existed prior to that moment doesn't matter as long as the communication happened successfully, and that's English.
0: Yeah, it's, I mean, there's an element of jazz-like nature to English. It just kind of, like you said, the the willingness to stick to the rules to a degree and then to improvise for a good amount of it as well, to kind of throw in your own flourishes and um, allow the language to develop. I think it actually almost, do you think that there's a tie in between the American political philosophy and you know you know like the Lockean liberal kind of um, the, uh, each man's freedom right, and the the way that the language developed at least in america
1: I think more than just America. I mean you look at a lot of uh, British history and there is really strong Uh, Through lines of desires for independent thought and expression throughout much of the the nation's history. I think we sort of Hmm. uh, received a fair bit of that and in some ways you could say that the Revolutionary War was a Philosophical continuation of a pattern of behavior that had been existing already for centuries uh, in England. Hmm. Um, mm. And so it's almost a fulfillment of that continued like desire for greater uh, freedom of expression and idea and independence um that that huh. you know could only be allowed by separating yourselves by an notion yeah uh, interesting it, I, I think it's also interesting if we think of because mm. this this ties into a thing that i'm not sure so like in in this country we have this whole thing of like race and racism mm-hmm and I think sometimes we are putting more weight on the color than on the sound. And what I mean by that is if you go to mm-hmm. uh, the UK, up until recently, if you were listening to the BBC, the voice would be that sort of traditional, like upper class posh English, English voice on the radio. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all you would hear and Mm -hmm. it's only within the last few decades that they have opened it up and allowed people with a broader array of british style accents to be front-facing people like on the tv or on the radio or doing podcasts because there Mm. is this deep ingrained classism it's not really tied to color so you can't call it a race thing but it's a class thing that dates back to their history of having multiple classes and the type of english you speak being determined by the class level order in society i think we've developed that here right like i had a professor in college who said that he spent years uh intentionally altering his accent to remove any aspect of like his traditional southern accent that he had yeah yeah specifically because he knew that that would have a negative effect on his ability to get better jobs in the future and that's something his parents told him to do they're like you need to do what you can to get rid of the accent we have because it will hold you back and so i Mm. think that there's an aspect of the accent and then also paired with like the choices of which words are paired with which words that has created Mm. this um sort of separation of, of cultures. So if you go to an African-American community anywhere in this country, you're going to find a lot of consistent overlap in the way that they uh, phrase things, and the way that they pronounce certain words. They don't say yeah, ask. Yeah. They say axe. as a classic mm-hmm. example, right? And yeah. I think that people pick up on that audio cue even without seeing the person. And then they right. have biases relating to that. Um, Well, and it's
0: the the classic example, too, of, like, how your name appears on certain documents will have an impact on um, whether or not you get a job in the next job interview or whatever else.
1: Yeah, Um, I I mean, there's the the classic example that uh, uh, an extremely high percentage relative to the general population of people in politics have two first names. Like, their last name is also a first name.
0: Oh, that's interesting, yeah.
1: Something about having Mm. a last name that could also be a first name in some part of our minds seems to be
0: uh, something we find trustworthy, which is really strange. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. So, okay, this is exactly what I'm talking about for the listener. Like, this kind of rabbit trailing and getting into very interesting... Like, Kevin, I don't know how you keep all of this in your mind, but it um, it is masterful, so... Um yeah wow I so it almost makes me think going back to the subject I there's this way in which um at least within the growing um you could say like interculture intercultural and international um vantage point of, uh, economic development, as, as, the, uh, the, as the economy takes root um, in a more globalistic sense, it seems to me that the, the like, new ethic of the day has to kind of be like what Paul says, but in a sort of boiled down and secular fashion, that you have to become all things to all people. Um, right, so the idea, it's, it's not that your professor wanted to get rid of his accent so that he could leave his family. I'm sure when he was around his family, the accent would kind of creep back in, um, and in fact, probably it would, it would get him out of certain, um, certain situations if he was using it in a certain context, right, um, because you don't want to be ostracized on the other side, either, um, on, you know, from the people that raised you. But I, I think that, like, it's almost like gaining a skill in being able to mute the, the certain rough edges of your personality, whether they be from, you know, what you might call uh, a lower or upper class milieu.
1: Yeah, and I've, this is something I've struggled with, especially with that verse and the culture we live in, is, is right. finding that combination that is authentically uh, myself... Um, Because partly that's a, a, you know, societally valued, oh, be yourself sort of thing. But also because I I think that um, truly forcing and molding yourself entirely into just some some other being than what is. Because, like, if you think about, yes, we are trying to become more Christ-like, but we are not trying to become God. We are trying to become Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. God. God Mm -hmm. formed us in our mother's wombs. So those unique mm-hmm. aspects of ourselves that might be slightly different from God, but are nonetheless still holy because they are created by him are mm-hmm. still good things. And you want to be true and authentic to those things. But yeah. at the same time, like how do you also then go and, and don't feel like every conversation you have with someone is you preaching a sermon? right and so right. Th- it's that balance for me i do have this sort of love of the english language and so i try to pull words and phrases from across the tapestry of time and location of the english language into everyday speech so i will use yeah. the word y'all even though i'm not from the south because it's a wonderful word
0: yes and it's one that's needed in our uh, english language it's been like dropped you know, it's in a lot of other languages and not there. Exactly.
1: Us. So there's there's nothing wrong with bringing it in. Um, but then sometimes I'll use more like classical, uh, almost borderline Shakespearean language if I want to sort of feel <laughs> in the moment that I want to create this or beautiful tapestry of language that people can suck at the nipple of just to make it weird <laughs> for you.
0: Oh, my gosh. I have to cut that out. No, no you don't. <laughs> no, no. Because that's natural. That's part of our creatureliness. We all, uh, well, not all of us, but many of us sucked at the nipples of our mothers. And so well, we have to and everyone has them, men and women. Yes, yes. Why um, men have them? I don't know. Maybe that needs to be our next topic. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> See, we can, we can find these, uh, these maneuverings. I manoeuvrings. Um, just saying, not everyone has a belly button, but everyone has nipples. Yes, uh, I hope. and I would like neither. I would, you know, I'm cool if we could just get rid of all of that, you know, <laughs> just like a like a marshmallow body, right? Just no indentations, perfect and smooth. Um, so, yeah, no. I, I going back to the the idea of like almost drawing from a wide swath of human uh, linguistic inheritance in order to bolster your ability to speak to different audiences at different times. You know, I think um, this this kind of begins to broach into a conversation that's been being had, and I'm sure that you kind of were introduced to this at least a little bit at Whitworth, because that's where you graduated from, yeah? Yes. So the conversation of um, how we avoid as white Christians bringing whiteness as a—or uh, bringing, um, bringing kind of the American dream into our evangelistic, um, you know, opportunities. So that when we're, you know, doing mission work or when we're evangelizing, we're not making our way of life one of the qualifiers for salvation or even just— proper ecclesiastical practice
1: yeah i mean um the the american dream is something that has evolved over time sure. and uh and it is oftentimes more of a pop culture dream than it is a a, a live reality by anyone that on a certain yeah. level it's a it's a hope or a strive for sort of a thing but i think For much of its history and probably still today the American dream it does not overlap directly with the heavenly dream no Uh, we we do tend to get those mixed up and I think the the goal is in our minds that we need to be remembering that our our citizenship of this country I mean it would be really hard but in theory it could be revoked we could lose it somehow we could if we wanted Mm -hmm. to we could pay to have it removed but um, because we are washed clean by the blood of Christ, our citizenship in heaven is guaranteed. It's locked in. It's, it's not something that's going to be taken away from us. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's where our true eternal citizenship is. That is our primary country. Like if you were to ha- be a person that had more than one citizenship, but you had like country of residency. Um, yeah. For us, it's not the United States it's the kingdom of heaven. Yeah. That's our country of residency. Yeah, we happen to be sojourning here in um, the United States or whatever country you happen to be listening to this from, but that mm-hmm. is not actually your primary residence. It is the kingdom yeah. of heaven, and we have to keep that in our minds and look at what is a heaven-like lifestyle like, and that's mm-hmm. the lifestyle we try to live. It's not usually mm-hmm. uh, sort of deep in practical termed one in terms of i'm going to have this percentage of of savings and do you know that sort of thing and i want my yard to look like this that's not the lifestyle that a heavenly person is looking at it's it's Mm -hmm. more of a mindset but that mindset leads to
0: lifestyle which also then leads back into mindset yeah and i would even say beyond mindset it's credo right it is it's how you choose to address the world um as a, as a person among people, um, how you choose to, what you choose to believe about your neighbor and what you choose to believe about the God who made your neighbor, um, that will kind of dictate how you, how you live and act, um, just to kind of take it, uh, maybe, maybe that's just making it a little bit too Kantian, but like, you know, I, I do think that it's important that it's, you know, not just a mindset, um, Because mindset is something that oftentimes has sort of a, uh, at least in our culture, it's like, a kind of this, oh, veneer of fakeness around it, right? Like, it's like, you just have to have a positive mindset. That's basically (laughs) just, like, tell yourself things are going well so that they, you know, they are in your head. It's like, you know, fool yourself. Um, But it's, you know, it it boils down to the level of of belief, which, to me, maybe it's because I've studied dogmatics too much at this point, but belief almost sounds more robust to me than mindset you know belief is is what you what you uh frame your life around regardless of how you feel at the given moment or regardless of how um you know what you may encounter uh to the opposite it's it's your it's your um your firm footing right um it's your foundation and um but anyways I think that's, that could be that's, a whole other topic, and I think that's interesting
1: too. In the context of the modern age, I feel like for the, the in the pop culture, belief is just that thing you happen to have off to the side. It's not the core part yes. of who you are, and yes, um, I, I think it's. You could argue that within the secular community, a f- belief that is a foundation of your being is like such a alien concept that they don't even really know how to conceptualize it in their minds it just doesn't it doesn't compute
0: right because truth truth has to be common truth has to be able to be verified by all um well yeah except then you run
1: into what is truth
0: right exactly yeah that's basically i mean it's it's basically empiricism when you when you frame it that way right when it's it must be accessible by all. or I, I guess you could maybe put it in rationalism, but even rationalism would have some caveats, I guess, with that.
1: Um, I, I mean, I do think regardless. there is a, a, a very clear standard by which we can imperially measure um, what truth is, and that is God.
0: Hmm. Okay, say more Say more about that. I might disagree with you, but let's okay.
1: see. I, I think that, um, and this is also sort of a, a broad trend of, of things like truth, or love, or justice. These are attributes of God. Um, to mm-hmm. understand what they truly are, instead of just what we conceive of them to be, we have to mm-hmm. measure them against God. Now, that doesn't mean mm-hmm. that um, if we understand love, therefore we understand God. No, because He is much broader and bigger than just love. But in order for mm. us to measure and understand what love is, we must look to God.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, actually, I, I, I would agree with that. I would, yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I, you, you almost have to enter into the, like, are you familiar with, like, apophatic, you know, approach to theology? maybe the, but i'm really bad with terms and definitions. The the like basically it's negative theology. It's the idea of like well we know what god isn't and that's how we'll define uh, him. Is okay. we use what he isn't as the as kind of the it creates a silhouette of what god might look like by slowly blocking out what he isn't. Um and so a good example of this would be, like, God is love, but God is not the love that, you know, human beings exhibit for one another in a creaturely sense. God is God is beyond that love. So that gives us a, a, a look into something that is, you know—it's, it's you know, like, it seizes upon an icon, right, or a symbol, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but then it, it makes clear and makes—it makes—, it makes uh, uh it makes important the the notion that, th- that that symbol does not connote the the god uh that we're talking about it it isn't it isn't the same as that god um it may bring our minds to that god in as uh clear a way as we're capable of but then it it we have to make the distinction that um that god is beyond that right um so I think, in that sense, I think you know the view that like God is beyond love, right so he he is love, God is love um but if if your first notion of love is what you as a creature conceive of as love, then you might be being uh misled in your understanding of love um, because you're you're using a Symbol that is creaturely to describe something that is external to creaturely reality Yes, I think I think that's exactly it and uh, that's also where people run
1: into trouble I think is um, This tendency to end up worshiping the attributes of God instead of God himself so we understand Mm. that that um, we define what true love is by looking at God but then we decide to fixate on love um, and to the detriment of our understanding of love and to our detriment of the understanding of God and we start to worship love mm. instead of God which is mm. idolatry um, or right. you know in uh, other communities it's called a fetish mm. <laughs> yeah right like, yeah yeah we, we understand inherently that people that really can only find pleasure in feet that something has gone wrong and yet we don't (laughs) have the same understanding that something's gone wrong when all people do is obsess over love and no other part of god
0: it it is interesting and do you do you think that that can also uh, expand out to the titles that are given so like god as father or god as the bridegroom or god as the, the teacher or the shepherd, right? Like, can, can this go farther where if somebody's unwilling to branch out in their, in their labeling of God, um, unwilling to admit all of the titles, then they're, they're sort of condensing their vision of God in an unhealthy way.
1: You could say that, or, or that, um, our worshiping of the inter, like, even if you so, like the the classic argument that the Jews have for Christians is that we are actually polytheists instead of monotheists because we have sure. the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so mm-hmm. if we um, worship each of those individually to excess, then that argument
0: actually ends up becoming true. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. So I'm going to move into I'm going to move into an idea that I've been pretty in- captured by. Um recently, and it comes out of barton Bonhoeffer um and I think it might be a uh, a key to creating a notion of what Christian truth is beyond just abstract notions um so so barton Bonhoeffer and i you you have some history with Barton Bonhoeffer, yeah, I mean More I think you the are the one side, that kind of put, yes you kind of put me on to the two of them as as keys uh, for me. I remember the conversations. Uh, I think you came to visit me while I was in college, and you were like, have you read any Bart yet? And I was like, uh, no. And you were like, yeah, you gotta read some Bart. <laughs> it's like well, okay. anyone that enjoys right. Lewis but wants more systematic theology, well, you need to check out Bart. Like, he's a great parent. Yeah. Uh, well, that's interesting, I, especially given that C.S. Lewis was much more open to natural theology than... Than Bart, but uh, yes, there's a similar. I would say there's a similar linguistic um, kind of like neither of them s- sound in a lot of their popular writings as if they're trying to be like overly academic. Both of them are are theologians for the church. I would say, um, and that kind of gives them a nice like Bart. Bart can be a little complicated to read especially out of context. But if you read him in context, he has this kind of almost symphonic way of writing, um, where he he kind of go- does these, like, ellipses around whatever he's talking about, um, batting away all the things that it couldn't be before he gets to the thing that it is. and And the way he says it is very, like, it, it's been described as sermonic, right? Like, it has this kind of, this gravitas to it. Um, that pulls in the reader it, he's really fun to read um but anyways okay so so from Barton Bonhoeffer I got this notion that um, we when we talk about God we have to address God based off of his own revelation to us we we have to stop primarily defining God based off of attributes that are disembodied from God's revelation of himself and so you know, Heavily leaning into disembodied, there, God has embodied Himself, um, and in the person of Jesus has incarnated, um, and has shown us, at least according to Paul, the fullness. Right, He is the He is the perfect imprint. Right, He is the He is the the image of the unseen God. Um, so, we, what was before unseen for us uh, about God is seen in the person of Jesus, and that because Jesus is that revelation of God to us, he is the only place we can go to to find, um, like, the truth about God. Uh, we can, we can, we can extrapolate from who Jesus is into these sort of attributes that we, we name and give him, but if they don't find their rooting in Jesus— then they might very well be the god of Plato or the god of Aristotle, but not the god of the Bible, right? Um, and I, I think this is a really fascinating notion because I think it completely regrounds our theology. It, like, especially given the, the moves of scholasticism to kind of integrate popular philosophy and, and the god, uh, the, you know, the kind of uh, monadic god of the Greeks... Um into Christian theology, um like I think this kind of gives it gives Christian theology its own um place to stand, right on on a place that is not um someone else's soil, you know what I, does does that make sense in the way that I'm explaining it? I think possibly we'll see. Um. Okay, <laughs> okay. But but basically, so the, the idea then is, you know, apophatic theology, the idea of, like, negating in order to get to what God truly is, is—it is, makes sense if your God is, you know, transcendent, which we do believe our God is transcendent. But then our transcendent God came to us in the manger and showed what it meant to be God— by uniting himself to humanity, um, and so that, like, so specifically, what it means for God to love humanity is for God to die for humanity. What it means for God to love humanity is for God to be with humanity in a way that he, uh, in a way that would seem to contradict what it would mean to be God, um, right? To, to to bridge the gap between the creator and the creature. Um so it's not us bridging that gap it's it's God himself um but the gap has been bridged
1: I suppose uh, I uh, th- what I what I kept thinking of especially at the beginning when you were talking about this was um you have seen and therefore you believe blessed yes. are those who do not see and yet still believe
0: Interesting okay go into that more
1: Well that's what Jesus says to Thomas um, sure. And so that would imply that you cannot see and still believe that mm-hmm, the, the mm-hmm. seeing of Jesus is not a necessary condition of faith.
0: And: Oh, yeah, um, uh, yes, but I, I don't think that you can... Um, let's say it this way, I think that it had Thomas never seen Jesus at all. I don't know that Jesus would have said that. But I think I think what he's trying to say there is you you walked with me, right? And you heard the claims about my resurrection. And you you would not believe them to be true until you had seen me resurrected. Mm-hmm. But you could have believed before that, right? But I I don't think that that means that like there's a there's a uh, some sort of separation where you could say, well, there is an unseen God that you can kind of believe in, and it'll get you close enough. Like, I think, I think he's still locating himself as the way, truth, and life. Um, I just think in, in that moment he's saying, like, remember I talked about this for, like, a long time, how I was going to die and raise, and you could have believed without seeing that it was true, but you had to have the, the fact, you had to have the proof, um and that is not a strength that's a weakness
1: i guess more more what i'm circling to is we've had you know give or take 2000 years of christ's reign mm-hmm. and before that we had you know I, i'd say minimum 4000 years of human history mm-hmm. in which god was Still very much engaged with humanity, as we see through the Old Testament, sure, sure,
0: and he was unseen through all of that time, well, so that's where I would actually say, I don't think he was unseen, I don't think he was with the people to the same felt degree that he was when he was in the person of Jesus um but i I do think that like, in the same way that, like, Jesus is with us now, and yet we do not see him, but he works, and in his works we see him, and we come together as the body, and in that we see him, and the the word is preached, and in that we see him, um, like, I, I still think that there is a proximity that Christ has to us that it goes beyond what is visible, um, so so this is where, yeah, this is where you almost do have to lean on your extrapolation of, of who God is in Jesus Christ, and you have to believe that now, and you have to, like you said, hone in on um, believing without seeing, because we don't have another option, right? Um, but I think that the, it's the same God. Like, I don't think that the God of Israel and Jesus Christ are separate. I think that the God of Israel incarnated in Jesus Um and I think that the you could say like the the manifestations of that God in Israel, um, so like the the burning bush, the the um, the rock that follows them in the wilderness, the uh, the sm- the pillar of smoke and of uh, fire. That they are that same impulse of God to manifest Himself that later culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, I mean. I guess maybe more broadly, what I'm concerned with of this is. I feel like we already have an unhealthy tendency in. Actually, it's circling back around to the the worshiping of attributes of God. This is putting all mm. of it on Christ, and mm-hmm. discounting the Spirit and the Father, and therefore God as a whole. Mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, I the I would push back on that because I I. Hold a pretty Augustinian understanding of the Trinity, where like they you there is no place in which you see one member of the Trinity one person of the Trinity where the other two are not present there as well right and I think so I think this I think Jesus is the incarnation of the Son, but in him are the spirit and the Father as well um. And, you know, because he says that, you know, I, right. you've seen the Father, I but am why, the Father, the Father is in me.
1: Why single out trying to figure out the, all of who God is through the
0: Son and not the Spirit or the Father? Because I don't think they're different gods. They, they're all one God. So where you see the Son, you see the Father, and you see the Spirit. So, like, I, I don't think that there is a separation in that way. Like, I don't think that... Where you see Jesus, you're not seeing the Spirit or the Father. I think you do see the Spirit and the Father because you're seeing Jesus.
1: Maybe, so you maybe get the full of the Trinity. I I, I, I kind of get where you're where you're at with this. I guess maybe it's just um, in your initial description of this, it was um, purely like Christ, New Testament focused, and that that was kind mm. of it, right? And so it mm. felt like um, it was yes. almost removing or discounting like the Old Testament almost instantly. Yeah. Right? Which and, we kind uh, of have a bad habit of right now. In uh, church, absolutely I'm, in the
0: States. I am no fan of Marcion. Uh definitely uh the I would say that they equally testify to the person of Jesus. Uh the Old and New Testament, one looking back, one looking forward. Um but I think that the new testament gives us the eyes to see the old testament for what it truly is right like that until jesus comes on the scene we don't know what the old testament is actually about yeah but the old testament is all about jesus it all is pointing towards the messiah and once we have jesus come and basically you know walk the road to emmaus with us and show us all the places in the scripture that the you know that this was prophesied about i think at that point we we have a new understanding of what the Old Testament is um it's the It's the passionate love of God for humanity that culminates in the coming of God to humanity in the person of Jesus for the sake of dying and rising to save them um, does that make sense? Yes, it does. You can't disconnect Christ from the God of the old testament they they yes. are the same God so you, and and they can inform each other um like. I, I don't think that you could say that you have to read the New Testament before you can understand... Uh, well, you do have to read the New Testament before you can understand the Old Testament, but neither has, I would say, primacy. Like, you can... Because the Old Testament, the way you read the Old Testament will influence the way that you read the New Testament, and vice versa. Like, they, they're... You could say they're uh, in dialogue, in conversation with each other, at all times. Um, so... All of this is kind of a as a, a way of maybe escaping the fetishism that comes from abstracting one thing about God and loving that part of him. Because Jesus embodied, I would say, all of the different attributes we might give to God at different intervals in his life. Um, kind of like showing us through the looking glass these different things. Um, and in order to get the whole picture of who Jesus is, you have to reckon with a lot of these, these attributes. He acts as kind of a regulating, um, principle for theology. You, you can't, um, you can't stray too far from who God is if you're looking purely at Jesus. Does that make sense? Yep, yep, it absolutely does. Cool, cool. So, Anyways, that that all to address the, you know, that kind of that fetishization of, of certain attributes, which I, I feel like you do see constantly. And so, like, you know, when I was early on in college, I would have been a pretty hardcore, like, cage-stage Calvinist, and I'm sure you remember those conversations, um, the, the rabid Calvinist conversations. Um... But I think the thing that I was missing... Like, I, it's not that I don't believe in God's sovereignty anymore. It's just that I believe that that sovereignty looks different now. Um, like, there, there's an element of that sovereignty that has to be grounded in the manger, right? Like, what it means for God to be powerful, uh, what it means for God to be, um, you know, overall, is the cross. And, like... Th- I'm still kind of trying to reconcile what that even means for what, what how I envision, envision God's sovereignty. But, like, reading 1 Corinthians 1 and seeing that Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God, like, that turns everything upside down. Um, it changes the way you see everything. It grounds it completely differently.
1: Yes. very much so. So you have any not have I, any thoughts on that? No, I think you did I think you'd kind of brought the whole thing around full circle. You did a good job.
0: Yay! Yay, we hit full circle. Okay. Yay. So so Kevin, what have you been thinking about? That's been my major reconstruction in the past like 2 years has been a radical recentralizing of my my theology on the person of jesus and trying to and and the god of the old testament because again i don't think they're different but like basically looking to the bible for my theology more than i'm looking to plato um yeah that's that's and and other you know abstracting philosophers what has been your major um you know what what have you been thinking about recently in in regards to who god is and what the church is in light of him
1: Oh, that's 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 a wonderfully broad and nonspecific question. I'm sorry, <laughs> and you're welcome. I reserve those thoughts for the shower. <laughs> for oh, the, me too, the, man. All the greatest
0: I, uh, moments of, of uh, epiphany happen in the shower. I know. I, I how long of showers do you take, Kevin? I know this is this is probably too long. Um, Dude, me too. Yeah. Me too. So when you back. were growing up, though. You used to take the fastest showers ever. Like, you'd you'd be in and out in, like, three minutes. And I was, like, shocked. That's Um, just because I, like, when I, it's
1: being an only child. When you have the opportunity to spend dedicated time with another human being. You, you want to <laughs> take advantage of every possible that's, second, right? So that's a good point. That was just because yeah, I was yeah. hanging out with you. If it's if it's oh. just me, oh, it's it's gonna be a good long time in the shower.
0: You're making me blush. Well, anyways, so okay, oh, okay. don't worry. Could have been so anyone. You, you're oh okay. Right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Now I now I feel like a piece of meat. Um. So so you're a long shower like me. We I, I feel like it's the one time that I know for a fact I can put my phone in the other room and, you know, not be listening to a podcast or anything else and just, like, sink into the deep mire of thought. Um, And it's wonderful. Yeah. Um, And probably is running my my gas bill way up the wall, but, Uh, you know.
1: Well, now that I have had had time to, um, you know, distract you by uh, uh, coming up with something, I I wouldn't say that this is (laughs) a... um, This isn't a solved problem in my mind. This is an ongoing quandary, as it were. Sure. Um, Which is the... So, I've gotten... I think I've gotten quite good over the years because I've sort of dedicated mental effort to it of not sort of holding grudges or great anger or frustration towards individuals. Like, I'll have it, but I'll, I'll generally be able to sort of, you know work through it and release it and not have that again, you know, not laying mm. the sunset on your anger, that sort of thing. Like, yeah, you're going sure. to get upset sometimes, but it's not going to last. For, for mm. people, I've gotten pretty good at that. I do not have that same sort of peace when it comes to institutions. Hmm. And hmm. that's a complicated one for me because on the one hand, institutions are made up of people. Yeah. who I'm called to love. And yet I feel like oftentimes these collections of people, um, although they are not individually willing harm, are are resulting in you know, great detrimental harm and pain and suffering for, mm-hmm. for many people around the world, sometimes including myself, quite actively mm-hmm. sometimes for multiple weeks or months. Yeah, And, it, I mean, part of that is, like, I... I mean, I work for a company, right? Like that's the essence of working for a corporation a for profit entity. Like it's, that's kind of the point of profitability Mm -hmm. is, is pushing the edge. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, there are times where I'm just like, none of this makes sense. This is mad. No, no single person is wanting this. And yet it, here we are. And I don't know what to do with that
0: anger. Yeah. That's interesting that isn't that's a real man i knew i could rely on you for something interesting to to talk about in this man that we could talk for a long time about that whether or not institutions are like warrant forgiveness right oh man i don't Um, know the people obviously yes right like that's
1: easy um yeah, but when you have and and you know now we add in things like computers and AI and it's not even people making these decisions a lot of the time
0: and I just I don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And the more personal, even computers get, the more you can easily get frustrated with them and yes. be, and use them as a place to exercise your anger in uh in you could say in the place of somebody who's human, right? Y- you can you can still be exercising that same anger in the same way that like a psychopath might, you know, you might start seeing the signs by them killing animals. Even though it's not right, they're not yeah. killing people, it's like it's a place it's an analog for the the vile, you know, human thoughts. That's interesting. Um yeah. This also goes into that kind of almost that litigation question, or at least it's, it's um, you know, you could say it's, it's, a, it's an extrapolation of this question of, like, whether or not corporations are people, right? Um, From
1: a legal standpoint, typically they are. From a practical right. standpoint,
0: I'm not sure. Yeah. Because what is the corporation outside of the people, outside of the will of the people? like what is it just the prolonged principles and laws that have been set in place by those people like can you cuz at the same in the, in some sense the policies right or the the processes that end up hurting people the most in institutions are the long are, are made by people who are either long gone or long dead yeah, um, yeah. they're, you know, they're just the lasting, um, yeah, the lasting inheritance of, of people who, um, founded the company or, or had, you know, a significant interest in it. Wow. That is a powerful question. I think this is why I'm so cautious about government. Yes. Um, you and I, I think, share sentiments on this. I, or at least I'm, I at least I don't know where you're at now with this, but I think I'm at where you were at one point, and I wasn't there when we were originally talking about it. But like, I was a pretty hardcore libertarian at one point, point. Um, and now I'm just kind of apolitical. Like, I've I've kind of resigned my my engagement with the state at all because I don't, I, I, I can't see past the notion that the government is, well, it's a monopoly on force, and I don't think force should ever be the Christian tool, um, for creating change in the world. Um, and so any engagement I have with the state ends up, I think, doing more harm than good in the long term. Um... But it's the same question, right? Like, it's things that make sense in the short term that end up screwing people over in the long term. Um, that, that get baked into the policies and the decisions and the, you know, the infrastructure of different institutions. Um, but I think that's, that's my, that's my caution with government is it, I, I think it, it is, um, inherently impatient with people like by nature it wants to transform people or conform them into a certain image and that's fine as long as that image is a good image but if it's an image of what humanity should look like that's made in haste that can be really detrimental in the long run
1: no i think i think that's pretty well said um I like that what what was it you were saying that um um uh, it
0: uh de- it demands haste or it y- yeah yeah it demand yeah it it's uh it it's impatient it's in intrinsically impatient that was impatient.
1: It. that government uh, some sort of parallel in my mind um government is impatient and yet demands from us complete patience yeah, if the if yeah the, if the IRS calls you, they expect an immediate answer. If you call the IRS, right. good luck getting a response from them within the next three months.
0: Exactly, and I, yes, and I think that's that is a um, a, a result of a non natural human relationship to government. Like you're you're basically interacting with. An entity that has all of the all of the chips, um, and in human relationships, that's never the case. We never th- we never run into people who have all the cards and we have none, right? Um, the, and you could go with Hobbes and say, well, we've given them our cards. It's like, yeah, well, maybe we shouldn't have, <laughs> but um, but anyways, the I think the um, yeah, the. It it is, it is unhuman the way that we interact with government because in any human relationship there is negotiation based off of the different, you could say, powers that we have, right? So we, you know, we recognize that we still want the person in our lives, but we also want certain aims and ends. And we, you know, we utilize people as both means and ends. We recognize both. Whereas in government, the relationship between a a person and government, it's like... It's almost like we are entirely means. We are entirely manipulated. um, And so seldom thought of as ends in ourselves. Um, And... I suppose you could say that, at at least in, in governments like American government, there's a degree of of um like response that we can have like we can change the government because the government is to some degree in our hands um but then there's also the question of whether that those changes will will happen in time for us right like there can be certain changes that need to happen on a dime that if they don't happen on a dime could be you know good for the next generation but not not really good for us there's so there's just so many there's so many different um uh what would you say different um axes on which the government is a dangerous game. <laughs> um but yeah. Managing, that's hard.
1: Managing human systems is an extremely complex process um and one could argue beyond the scope of any human. Yes. And I don't necessarily think it's a failing of humanity that we haven't succeeded in in doing what is likely literally the impossible. I mean, how many of us spend our entire lives struggling to manage ourselves? We shouldn't be surprised that we're also therefore unable to manage the entirety of each other. Yes. At the same time, you can't just leave it up to each individual person because we are all struggling with different things throughout the entirety of our lives. This is right. why we have government, to try to create some some order, some structure that mm-hmm. benefits us all as a whole. But you have the downside that some people are going to end up having a greater and uh, unjustly proportional negative consequence of that attempt mm. to make the majority of people's lives better. And that's yeah. assuming we have a semi-idealistic government that is you know of the people for the people um yeah. that's that that's not even looking at like a dictatorship yeah um but yeah it's i i feel like as you go further up the chain with government the amount of control and also the amount of um that the, the amount of control you have goes down like my my vote for president is essentially useless in the state of Oregon because it's a very blue state sure. when it comes to the, the electoral college system. My yeah. vote for city council members probably has quite a bit of weight because I'm in a smallish town and yeah. not everyone votes. So mm. that actually has quite a big effect. Um, mm. And so it, it, it it's, especially when it comes to local things, Discussing them with each other, um, especially before you vote so that you can get input from those around you in the community and and also give your input to them, uh, discussing that is something that has the real potential for change. Mm. Um, And it feels much less like, you know, government and more like an actual community once you get to yeah. the really big like state national stuff all of a sudden it's just you know one one little drop in a massive ocean of of voters yeah. and wills and ideas and your ability to affect it is generally close to zero
0: and it tends towards too basic and very caricaturized understanding of human good at least in our system Well, Well, and and others as well. More so in ours than others, I think you could argue, because we have essentially
1: a two-party system, um, whereas others usually will have a multi-party system with two dominant um, sort of alliances, but those alliances change and adapt over time based off of the political whims of the nation, but you still usually end up with a we are for this camp and a we are against this camp.
0: Right, right. That's And so that makes sense of why it's two. It's, pol- it's polaric, right? Is exactly. polaric a word? Uh, whatever. Well, going um, back to the beginning of the discussion, it is now. It is now, because I'm American, and I, I decide what English is. <laughs> um, so, so which I, which I, is I, one I, of the most American statements ever, if you think about yes, English. Yes, totally. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So the... Um, a thought that came to me while you were talking about that is, I wonder if there is an adequate analogy in uh, in the, is it, oh man, I'm going to show my ignorance here. Is it the fifth commandment? Honor, honor, thy, honor thy father and thy mother, for it shall go well with you in the land, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's something about that commandment that speaks to, you could almost, I don't know if demythologize is the right word, but like, almost abstract it, um, and say, there will always be, right, like, the only reason that you would dishonor your parents is if you thought there were things that were good, there there are things that are good that your parents don't think are good, right? That's the only way that you're, you're gonna get into a situation where you're dishonoring your parents, but the fact that it makes it that high up, that it's in within the Decalogue, I think that you're, I think it, you could almost say that it is a tendency for humanity to look upon those in authority over it and to, um, not be patient with them, right? To want to change them. It's um, called
1: being a teenager.
0: It's called being a teenager, but I don't, I don't know that that. I think teenage years are where you begin to experience that lashing out against, uh, against authority. But I don't know that we ever necessarily escape that. We, we, we do one of two things. We either, um, you know, basically we, like, we, we hate the authority, um, for the rest of our lives. Or we, or, you know, we live in spite of it, I guess. Um, or we try to become the authority, um, and we try to change what our, parents did wrong, and you could say that's the politicians as well, that's the teachers, that's the, you know, that's that's all of the people in authority over us. We try to do something different um, in reaction against our parents. Um, we seize authority in their stead. Um, and I'm not sure whether either of those are noble. Um, like, I, I obviously, we have to take up authority at some point because somebody has to do it, but the, the reactionary, right, like, changing everything that the parents did because we didn't like it, um, oftentimes gets us into the opposite problem of whatever our parents were dealing with, um, so, like, you see this, like, quite, quite, um, simply in, in, like, spanking policies, right, like, I was spanked growing up, um, not often, but, like, you know, on occasion. I know a lot of my friends were. Um, I know my parents were. I know their parents were. And for some reason, spanking got kind of, like, uh, it became ill-advised in parenting communities, um, probably in reaction against the parents who way over-abused that, right? Um, And now, all discipline seems cruel, at all, right? And it's like it's just the complete opposite. It's like antinomian, right? Just like do whatever you want. Parents are almost afraid of their children. Um it's gone the complete opposite direction. And I think all of that because we took up the mantle of authority and decided that our parents were stupid. Um we did we dishonored our parents, right? And our um So so maybe maybe it's this, Kevin, instead of I think oftentimes one of the keys to forgiveness is finding that you yourself have the same uh, problem in you that that leads to the institutional problem or to the or to the personal problem. The person who's whatever your enemy has in them is the same as what is in you, um, and there are times that you've done the same thing, right? So it's like that. It's the same thing as like being the the parable of the guy being forgiven all of his debt and then you know not forgiving the debt of his neighbor, right? Um, so maybe maybe the key is recognizing that like I can't I couldn't run the government in a better way. I think that there are probably ideas that I have about how government should run that are bad ideas. And that would get us into equal, if not greater, problems than the way the current government works. And almost having the patience—it's a similar patience as you have when you grow up and you realize your parents aren't perfect. And there's two ways you can go with that. You can either be like, aww, you know, kind of pat on their head. um, Like, uh, I—kind of almost condescend to your parents and say, like, I get it. You were trying your best, you know. Um, I don't agree with the way that you did this, that, or the other thing. But I get it. You're, you know, you're human as well, and I probably would have done the same thing in your situation. And then there's the other th- thing where it's like, I am the arbiter of truth, and you are stupid and ridiculous, and I will basically, um, I will usurp your power and change everything that you did. Um, and I think, and obviously these are polaric as well. Again, hey, I'm using the word that I just invented, Uh, (laughs) but uh, maybe there's something in in adopting that same sort of patience that we might have with our parents, with our our governing authorities, um, in saying, like, these are difficult problems that they're trying to solve, Um, and I probably would be in the same—I would be up the same creek that they are if I tried myself.
1: Yeah, I think that's pretty solid. Um it's it's usually where I end up with this as well. Um but it it keeps coming
0: back around for me. Um Yeah. And you're in the heart of an institution, right? Like in an institution that doesn't necessarily have any desires beyond profit making to make things better for the people that are working. For yeah, them I mean, and I mean the the, the core of
1: of a for-profit business i think by law is that they actually have to try to make money Um, right i'm in the airline industry so there's a a big overlap with government um right i think i think if for no other reason than people uh there i don't know why people find flying concerning uh you know we're all born floating like why would a plane (laughs) be you know (laughs) Um, yeah, <laughs> there is, that's there funny, is that's an interesting parallel Inherently unnatural about human flight mm-hmm. And um, so s- stories and tales and the very big realities of airline crashes uh, Have an outsized um, sort of societal reaction uh, And mm-hmm. that's resulted in a very long-standing history of strong safety at the core of hmm. pretty much everything related to the airline industry, but also strong governmental oversight to ensure that it stays that way. Hmm. Um, so there is that sort of nonprofit aspect of the safety side, which is also really strong, right. at least. In, I, and I know everything is like, oh yeah, I think safety or whatever. Um, and, and so that's sort of like a, just an offhand for every industry, but there. The financial repercussions of a factory worker getting his arm chopped off by a machine, like, Mm -hmm. yeah, that's going to be a a hit on profitability for that shop. But, like, it's not going Mm -hmm. to have a repercussion to every other factory in the country and possibly other factories in the world. But an airline goes down, like an airplane goes down, and it does have... Yeah, a, a large national and felt global effect on the entire industry. So there's just sort of wow, that extra yeah. layer of consequence for someone screwing up, um, which mm. is kind of unique um, in, in, in sort of the realm I'm at. But it also means you do have a lot more inefficiency, right? Because mm. you have the inefficiencies of a bureaucracy and then you have the inefficiencies of the bureaucracy of government on top of that. Hmm. which is is, is, is sort of next level. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of realms for frustration and limited abilities to change things. And so it it keeps coming back up in my mind of like, oh, my goodness, this is driving me nuts. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and as with any policy buildup, I think, you get that eventual, like, this is ridiculous, we have so many rules, and the amount of profit that we are getting from these rules is not equivalent to the amount of energy that we're expending in following them Um, the I think the um, so maybe it would be helpful what you work in the airline industry but like what is your specific role within that industry what are you doing I
1: mean I'm at a small airport so we do everything except fix fuel or fly (laughs) Like, wow. Okay, yeah. so you're
0: checking in people. You're,
1: uh, we do, you're at we the do ticketing all. booth. We do the bags. We do the okay. people. We de-ice in the winter. De-icing, by the way, if you ever, like a lot of big airports, you can just do that as like a seasonal job in the winter. It is a lot of fun. I'm just going to throw that oh, out really? Here. As long as you don't mind like intense cold, it is so much fun. <laughs> and, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny and and yeah, like as long as i'm you also don't. saying like airports usually have the best views because all the trees have been cut down for the runway so like oh yeah, that's I mean, a good and point. you're above all the planes and the buildings up there it's 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 it's, it's very picturesque it's wonderful hmm. Hmm. um but yeah so, so yeah it's all the what things.
0: do you what is what does de-icing look like like what do you do basically the the idea is um
1: so you've got you've got sort of two um you've got two processes relating to deicing the first part is uh, the actual de ice like you're trying you've got ice on a wing and you want to get rid of mm-hmm. it and the reason you want to get mm-hmm. rid of it is like if so like if you've ever been on a lake that hasn't had mm-hmm. a Zamboni drive over it and make it all like super nice and smooth right right like it's bumpy like it, it may not look yes. it and then you put ice skates on and all of a sudden you are feeling those bumps right like you may not have seen yes, it but yes. they were there. So it's that same thing on an aircraft wing, and it makes right. the, it makes the plane not want to go up, and that can be problematic. So the first step <laughs> is you got you got to get rid of that ice. Um, but then if yeah. it's a real you know bone chiller of a day, like the ice is gonna come back. So mm-hmm. especially if it's snowing, so you got this stuff that's called anti ice, and it if there's no ice there, and you put this stuff on, it like sticks to the wing and it keeps ice from being able to build up got Um, it yeah and then it's it's all this like chemical stuff that's like specially designed so when the aircraft takes off it all just kind of like sloughs off during the takeoff process and so by the time the aircraft's airborne there's almost no goo left on the wings
0: or the plane at all it just kind of flies Mm. off um because you don't want that extra weight what do you think about the chemical makeup of the anti-icing agent like is that uh is I mean, it people hazardous smoke it. <laughs> what
1: it's mostly glycol both the ice and anti-ice fluid is predominantly oh, okay. glycol which is also the dominant liquid used in e vapes and e cigarettes
0: yes yes like yeah, I, okay.
1: I i don't recommend you get some like type 1 or type 4 fluid and stick it in your vape and see what happens like that's probably a really bad idea <laughs> 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 the vast majority but similar, of this stuff is uh is just glycol
0: so it's actually d- and, pretty e- okay for the environment here's my second question which is um w- w- why do you know that why do you know what is in the de-icing oh, agent did you look training. it up
1: no no they they teach you oh this okay stuff because they want you because it's like you're gonna be spraying this stuff and like there's a chance you end up you know breathing in through your mouth or something like you're going to get it. Sure. In. This stuff blows everywhere. Uh, you're supposed to, to wear that. goggles, but you know, people are idiots and they don't always do that. And then now it's in your eyes yeah. and like, so, but yeah, it, it, um, I don't know of anyone that's gone blind or lost their voice cause they got some, some de-ice got fluid it. near their, their body parts. Um, you know, the only thing <laughs> you don't good. want to do is the, the stuff that actually gets rid of the ice is like superheated. You do not want to mm. touch that stuff directly. It will just burn you straight through. It's really hot. It's great though yeah, if that's it's cold bad. out because you can hold the hose and kind of warm your hands up. It's nice.
0: <laughs> that's funny, yeah. man. Well, we're nearing an hour ten, oh, yeah. so I think I'll probably <laughs> wrap things track. up. Sorry. I mean, man, it goes it goes so fast. Every time I podcast with people, I I'm I'm so shocked at how fast these things go. Um, but thanks for coming on and I'm definitely going to have you on again if you're willing. Kevin, oh yeah. Cause oh, this was fun. always love talking with you. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much for listening to Sophomoros this episode, um, with me and Kevin and, uh, we will see you guys again soon. Um, may Christ be exalted.